What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, ahead on The Exchange. Another day and another set of record highs for stocks. With earnings season off to a pretty good start, consumer confidence bouncing back, the housing market still strong, and a potential stimulus deal. Do the markets have a green light for the remainder of 2021? Plus, the debut of our earnings exchange today. As the season ramps up, we've got the action, the story, and the trade ahead of three key reports tonight. Microsoft, Alphabet, and Robinhood. And with the White House looking for ways to pay for that multi-trillion dollar spending plan, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen supports an unrealized capital gains tax on billionaires. Why our guest says it's the worst tax idea ever. But we begin with today's record-setting markets. Dom Chu is back with the numbers. Oh, I'm back and here with a vengeance today because the markets overall have hit those record highs again. The two indices that we want to watch are the Dow Industrials. They get their gold star because they hit a record high. The S&P 500 hit a record high as well. The Nasdaq is within stone's throw of its own record high, but still less than a percent away from there, even with the down market today. But the Dow and the S&P, those levels being retaken here, it doesn't seem like so long ago we were talking about the woes in Washington, D.C. and possibly the collapse of Evergrande, the Chinese property giant. But again, markets have shrugged those off for the time being. We'll see if that sticks. Kelly had mentioned Robinhood, Alphabet, Microsoft as key earnings reports after the bell. I'm going to throw another one out there, and that's AMD. Advanced Micro Devices comes out with its earnings report after the closing bell today. And the reason why it's important is because it's been one of the leaders of that big semiconductor advance over the course of the last several weeks here. And by the way, NVIDIA, Advanced Micro, and Xilinx, even though Xilinx has now floated to the red over here, have all hit record highs themselves in trading today. They're all off their session highs, but still, that semiconductor trade is still very strong here. Not near, not at record highs, but close to there so far. So watch that particular trade. And then maybe the stock that we all want to keep watching, whether you're long or short it, you got to pay attention to what's happening with Tesla. Now the fifth biggest component of the S&P 500. It didn't go into the index that long ago. Still, though, it's down a half a percent, well off its session highs. It did at one point hit its own record high again, and that market cap still stands again, Kelly, at that one T level, over $1 trillion. At one point, around $1.06 trillion, now closer to that $1 trillion mark. Kelly will keep an eye on those Tesla shares. At some point, it may take a rest, but for right now, it's still at record highs. Back over to you. What a move that's been, Dom. Thank you. And better than expected data this morning is helping push stocks to those records he talked about. Consumer confidence bounced back unexpectedly in October. September's new home sales hit a six-month high. Joining me now to react, Kevin Mon is president and chief investment officer at Henyon and Walsh. And Jim Karen is global fixed income portfolio manager at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Welcome to you both, Jim. You see more bullish catalysts for stocks? 
Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, yes, I do. <laughs> um, I, you know, effectively, I think the data has been good. And in what we're seeing right now is, is a pretty steady chain of, of better than expected data. So the surprise indices are actually starting to rise much more aggressively, you know, at, at least in the fourth quarter. The third quarter, I think, was a little bit of a reset. But now what we're starting to see is the data really start to come into its own. I think that now, you know, once we get past the third quarter, slump, I think the fourth quarter and even looking into the first quarter as supply chain issues hopefully get better, um, this should be a positive going forward. And, and I realize I'm going out of order here. So my, my apologies, Kevin. What about you? When you look at bullish catalysts ahead, what's still out there if we're you know, now to the point of rattling off all the good news? Yeah, Kelly, with inflationary pressures likely to stay present for the foreseeable future and perhaps even be further exacerbated by additional fiscal stimulus and a delay in monetary tightening, we have a positive outlook for the balance of this year for U.S. stocks, although there may be more short-term bouts of volatility along the way. One area we particularly like is dividend-paying, value-oriented equities, those same stocks that may be benefited by the ultimate passage of an infrastructure spending bill that should benefit certain cyclical sectors that are generally more value-oriented. You have a couple of names, Kevin. You have Chevron, Cummins, and Cisco. You think all of these are stocks that people can own for, let's call it, the next 12 months? Yeah, all three of those stocks are in the most recent series of our morning dividend yield select trust, and they touch upon the energy, the industrials, and the technology sector. All generally value-oriented sectors, each one of those stocks pays a dividend above 2.5% and has a very attractive P.E. of 16 or below. Value-oriented, dividend-paying U.S. stocks, we believe they're not only going to provide upside potential for the balance of this year, but into 2022 as well. And Jim, since you're here, I want to talk about your views on the dollar, which you think is, I think you called it in a secular bear trend. That, that could worsen inflationary pressures across the economy right now, couldn't it? Yeah, it, it could. And, and the issue, though, is, is how quickly the dollar declines. I, I do think that the dollar declines, but I think it's somewhat slow. I think this, this has a lot to do with uh, China. I mean, you know, effectively, China's taking a very, very different role in the world. They're trying not to the export engine. Um, effectively, they're not as much of the price setter for goods as they were in the past. They're trying to create internal demand. And we think that the dollar is going to decline somewhat slowly, but we do think that it's in a bear trend. In fact, if you pull up a chart of the of, of the dollar versus the CNY, what you're going to find is that the dollar has been in a pretty strong bear market versus versus the Chinese currency. So this does have some potential to increase inflation in the U.S. But what we also have to recognize is that inflation is expected to really drop off pretty quickly starting in the second quarter of 2022 because all the you know reopening base effects start to really become hard to beat. And effectively, the year-over-year comparables for inflation is going to show that it starts to decline. So essentially, that will be somewhat of, of a... I guess somewhat of a ballast against right. higher inflation prices versus a, a, a softly weakening dollar. Oh, we can hope so. Uh, no hyperinflation from you two today. We appreciate it, guys. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. Kevin Mon and Jim Karen on these markets. We just got the results of a two-year bond auction. Want to go to Rick Santelli? Sounds like it didn't go off that great. Rick, what can you tell us? You know what? It wasn't so bad. The problem with this particular auction, and let's go through it, uh, 60 billion of two-year notes kicking off 183 billion of supply this week, is it got a little messy. Right at the end, right a few seconds before one Eastern, 
Uh, the yield at the Dutch auction, 0.481. It really was trading closer to, you know, 0.48, 0.48 plus. So we give a little demerit for that. But the metrics, the internals were actually quite strong. 2.69 bid to cover Kelly, the best uh, since May of this year. 58.1 on indirects, very strong. Uh, of course, those are foreign uh, entities. 22.3 on directs. You know, that's like mutual funds, insurance companies. That's the strongest since November of 2019. And the dealers take less than 20%. So I gave the auction a, a B minus. Uh, it really wasn't a bad auction. Uh, and I think the best way to look at this is we continue to see that the short maturities are getting a bit nervous as they try to reflect not only the taper, which is more of a long maturity issue, in my opinion, but when the Fed's going to actually start raising rates. You know, the home price index today was the highest in going back to 1985 on the S&P core logic. That's a year over year change. So we are continually seeing pressure on these shorter maturities. I think it was interesting that 10 year notes and 30 year bonds made their low yield high price pretty much right around the auction results. Hmm. So we are seeing some buying in the longer dated treasuries today. All right. Good stuff, Rick. Thank you so much. Rick Santelli out in Chicago. Well, an FDA panel is meeting right now to discuss whether to recommend Pfizer's vaccine for young children. Meg Terrell is here with the very latest. Hi, Meg. Hey, Kelly. So the morning was spent by presentations from the CDC, the FDA, and from Pfizer, all about the uh, vaccine safety and efficacy in kids ages 5 to 11. Remember, this is a third of the dose that is given to kids 12 and up and to adults. Uh, there was also a lot of discussion about the risk of COVID itself to kids to try to help with that risk-benefit analysis. Uh, the FDA, in its briefing documents, saying about 22% of overall cases since the pandemic began have been in kids under 18, um, 8.7%. 7% in kids ages 5 to 11, the ages being discussed today. But more recently, they say that's up to 39%. Um, deaths of kids under 18, 691 for the entire pandemic, 146 in this age group they're discussing today. So those numbers, while a lot lower than for adults, obviously still tragic. And uh, the reason a lot of folks say a vaccine is needed for kids. Now, the main issue that they're talking about today is this risk of myocarditis, uh, the rare um, heart-related side effect that can come with the vaccines. The FDA just now presenting an analysis showing that uh, the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks of that myocarditis uh, in multiple scenarios. And that will be the focus of the discussion of, from the advisors this afternoon. Right now, we're in a public comment period until 2 o'clock. Then discussion continues. The voting is expected to happen sometime between 3 and 5. And remember, Kelly, this is just a recommendation to the FDA. It then makes its own decision, and it goes to the CDC. Next week. Meg, Kelly. tell me about myocarditis because it sounds so scary anytime something is, is involved with the heart, and yet others say, oh, it's really not that severe and it goes away. What are the risks of it, and can they be mitigated if people are aware, I guess, especially for boys, that those risks might be higher? Yeah, the presentations this morning really made clear it is a risk that is higher for males than females. Uh, and it seems like it is higher in people in their sort of high teens and then, you know, can kind of go up through their 20s. And so there's some discussion that the risk could even be lower for younger kids. But it's just not really known because the trial uh, was just a few thousand uh, participants. And even in the 40,000 person trial, they really didn't pick up this risk. Uh, the good news is that when they see myocarditis, 
meningitis uh, as a result of the vaccine, it usually does seem to resolve itself, and it's typically more mild than the hospitalizations that come from COVID itself. So all of that is being discussed today. Um, but of course, it is something scary, and they're taking it very seriously. And remind me real quickly, Meg, after we get that vote, then what is the sequence of events in terms of the timeline? So the FDA will take the vote into consideration, make its own decision on emergency use authorization that could come anytime really within the next week before a scheduled CDC advisory committee meeting November 2nd and 3rd next week. Uh, they will give their guidance if the FDA has given the green light and then the CDC director will sign off. If all goes well, uh, we could see kids getting the vaccine as soon as November 3rd or 4th. Wow. Okay, Meg, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Meg Terrell with the very latest there. Still ahead, a new and controversial tax proposal is gaining momentum and its target audience is already looking for ways to dodge it. We have the details and the fallout for the public markets ahead. Plus, don't miss our debut of earnings exchange bottom of the hour really more the half hour, halfway through the hour. We're going to look at the action, the story, and the trade for some of the biggest names reporting results after the bell today. We're back in a moment. This is The Exchange on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. The market doesn't joke around. So why would you get serious? Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back, everyone. A new tax proposal targeting billionaires is gaining momentum on Capitol Hill. Robert Frank is here with the details and how some may already be trying to avoid it. Robert? Well, Kelly, we're still waiting on the details of this tax proposal. But to raise revenue for the social spending plan, Democrats are looking at a special billionaires tax. Now, it would apply to marketable securities, so that's stocks or bonds, rather than owing a capital gains tax when its stock is sold. The government would tax the annual increase in a stock's value or the unrealized gains, regardless of whether you sold. So Elon Musk, who has gained $120 billion in paper wealth this year, but hasn't sold any shares, he would actually owe a tax of $30 billion. Illiquid assets like property or art, they would be taxed retroactively after they're sold. Billionaires with an annual loss would get a credit against future taxes. But as you mentioned, accountants and tax attorneys for the wealthy already looking at potential loopholes here. Some are looking at trust to hold their stock. Others looking at perhaps putting assets into their foundation or gifting to charity to put them under that $1 billion threshold. And some are looking at shifting their wealth away from stocks and public assets to private assets that wouldn't face this annual tax. 
Kelly. All right, Robert. Thank you, Robert Frank. Our next guest says this new capital gains tax could not only be ineffective, but he calls it one of the worst tax ideas ever. Joining me now is Oswath Demoter, and he's NYU Stern School of Business professor. It's great to have you back. You, you say you're constantly amazed by the capacity of legislators to write bad tax law, but this one takes the cake. Why, uh, philosophically, is it such a departure? If you think if you think in perverse terms about writing really bad tax law, here's what you would do. You would focus it first on very few people, and those people have the capacity to fight back. And this law does that. You tie it to something that moves a lot. Capital gains is the most volatile of bases to base taxes on. You'd make it really difficult to compute and pay the tax, which is what happens when you have unrealized capital gains. And you might even steal taxes from other tax sources that you already collect. Now, this this bill accomplishes all of those in spades. I mean, it's a, it's almost perverse in terms of, if, as I look at the description, it's not quite fair because the actual bill is not in front of us. If I were writing bad tax law, this is what it would look like. So why do you think they're looking at going this route? And is, I guess, do you think there's a, again, I use sort of the word philosophic, is there a, a philosophic effort to make this step because it might start with billionaires, but ultimately be something that all Americans would have to reckon with. You know what? It's not really just billionaires, right? Because if you're a billionaire with $20 billion in inherited assets, and that stays roughly around $20 billion, the tax doesn't affect you. If you're a billionaire who takes $2 billion, builds a company and makes it worth $20 billion, the tax is coming after you. You might as well call this tax the Bezos uh, Musk tax. I mean, let's face it. This is a tax uh, tax that builds on the dislike that people have, not just for billionaires, but for billionaires who become richer quickly over the last decade. So from that perspective, it's not even consistent in who it, who it punishes. It punishes a subset of billionaires, entrepreneurs who've started businesses, and it lets loose or leaves alone billionaires got inherited wealth when nothing is happening to their wealth. You know, Cliff Asnes has been tweeting about how his preference would be to just do something that uh, eliminates the step-up basis, saying, in other words, you know, why should it be the case that if, you know, if I sell an asset, I pay capital gains, but if I pass it to an heir and they sell it, they don't. Um, do you think that that would be a fairer, a better, a broader way to raise revenue? It's a more direct way to do it, right? And to, you know, make, get rid of that. That's that free step up you get at inheritance. Because, but Congress never seems to want to take the direct way. And part of the reason for that is when you have a paper thin majority, you've got to go with desperation plays. And this reeks of being a desperation ploy. This is the only thing they can get through. So from that perspective, there are lots of other things you could do. You could raise rates. You could fix the inheritance problem. But this is the worst possible way you could have taken, and they managed to do it. It's interesting to me as, as well to watch what's going to happen with salt, which could end up benefiting a lot of the sort of wealthy that fall just below this step, um, even while it mm-hmm. appears like there's a, a big crackdown underway. So, and I'm sure your students ask you about this all the time. So if they said, okay, well, if the country wants uh, child care, if the country wants paid leave, if the country wants uh, these various sort of redistribution programs, and you want that wealth to come from Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, is there any other way to do that? No, I think that uh, there, are, there are other ways to do it. But each of those ways comes with opposition from a subset of the party that needs to vote for it. 
So I think while you can map out more direct ways, you can raise rates, you can, you know, the inheritance tax fix is an obvious one, but you can't start with a fixed spending amount and then ask, how do I, how do I fund this? Because that's not the way the world works. That would be like my looking at a $5 million house, deciding to buy it, finding that I can't afford it, and then asking you, what's wrong with you? Why can't you come up with a way? of my buying this $5 million house? Maybe the answer is that you can't do everything you want at the time that you want it, and that you might have to find compromises that work with the revenues that can actually raise today. And I thought you also made a good point that in some ways, would this be a pull forward of future sales and therefore actually undermine its ability to raise funds over the long run by, by moving that into the present? Uh, some really interesting points here, Asweth, and I really appreciate you joining me to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. Aswath Demotorin from NYU Stern School of Business. Still ahead, Breeze Airways taking delivery of its first Airbus A220 as it expands service to underserved markets. We're going to speak with the founder and CEO about their expansion plans, their push for market share, and the return of air travel. And this defense stock on pace for its worst day in over a year and a half as they reassess their five-year business plan. We'll tell you what's behind the move lower next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's up 20 points right now. S&P hanging on to a five-point gain. NASDAQ's down by 17. Dow was up 150 at the session highs, so we are well off those levels. Some of the movers this hour include Hasbro, which is jumping after its earnings beat and its revenue came in line. Supply chain disruptions did cost it about $100 million and lost toy orders in the quarter. They still expect full-year revenue to rise between 13 and 16 percent, and the shares are up nearly 4 percent today. Now, Lockheed Martin, we teased going into the break. They're on pace to their worst day since the pandemic, since March. 2020 after mixed results. They raised their EPS forecast, but slashed their sales outlook for this year and for next year. They're reassessing their five-year business plan given supply chain issues. Uh, the shares are down 13% today. They also have an agreement to deliver fewer F-35 fighter jets to the U.S. government. And finally, shares of DraftKings are climbing after the company said it's scrapping those plans to buy UK-based sports betting giant Entain. DraftKings up 3.5%. Our David Faber reported last month they were making a $20 billion bid for Entain. Uh, shares of DraftKings fell about 7% on that news and have been drifting lower since. You can see the reversal playing out today. Now, ahead on Power Lunch, we're going to speak with one of the newest members of the NBC Sports family. Maybe you saw him on the Peyton and Eli show last night. Former Super Bowl champion and MVP Drew Brees joins us. We're going to talk to him about the rise of sports betting and why he's taking a stake in the sports gambling site, PointsBet. And now to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. Heavy rain and intense winds barreling up the East Coast today and into tomorrow. New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy warning residents to brace for power outages and severe flooding. The entire coastline from Sandy Hook to the Delaware Bay is under a gale warning until 2 p.m. tomorrow, Wednesday. And given these winds, no one should be surprised if they lose power. 
college enrollment saw its largest two-year decline in 50 years as more students opted out this fall amid the pandemic uncertainty. The number of undergraduate students is now down 6.5% compared to two years ago, according to a new report from National Student Clearinghouse Research Center. And on the news tonight, USC halting all fraternity social activities after allegations of sexual abuse. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. And Buckingham Palace says that Queen Elizabeth will not attend the Global Climate Conference in Glasgow. The Queen is following advice to rest instead. However, she did resume work today, participating in a few virtual engagements from Windsor Castle. These were the 95-year-old British monarch's first engagements in a week after her medical team ordered her to take time off. That order was unrelated to COVID-19. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. 95 and ordered to take time off. Still working. She's my hero. Yep, still got Thank it. You. <laughs> still ahead, Big Tech is on deck with the five largest S&P companies all reporting this week. What to watch for and how to trade the names reporting after the bell today, including Alphabet, Microsoft, and Robinhood. It's the debut of Earnings Exchange next. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. 30% of S&P 500 companies are reporting earnings this week. That includes the five mega cap tech names with weightings that account for nearly a quarter of the index. So what better time to launch our new series, Earnings Exchange, where we're going to get the action, the story, and the trade on some of the biggest earnings. Today's lineup is Alphabet, Microsoft, and Robinhood. They all report after the bell. Let's kick it off with Microsoft. The street expecting revenues around $64 billion, EPS just shy of 24 bucks a share. It's rallied 60% this year as they continue to outperform on the reopening opening digital ad revenue. They're growing cloud. Let's bring in Deer Jabosa for the story and Delana Sapporo, founder of New Street Advisors and a CNBC contributor who will give us his trade on the stock. Deirdre, I mean, here's the thing. It's a clear winner. But the question is, when do they shift from being in the driver's seat uh, to maybe taking a little bit of a breather? <laughs> Right. And when you say clearest winner, it has been all year. I mean, it is by far the best performing thing and expectations are very high this quarter. Everyone is asking in terms of Internet businesses, excuse me, advertising businesses, how are the Apple privacy changes going to affect? We saw Snap, we saw Facebook, but of course, Google Alphabet are in a very, very different boat. It actually is likely to have benefited from those privacy changes because Advertisers who are typically going to Facebook and Snap, they see that that targeting has been compromised. Well, guess what? Google has a lot of first-party data. Those cookies operate a lot differently on Google search. So it's actually likely a winner. Sure, YouTube mobile ad business may have suffered a little, but search business is expected to have really accounted for that and make up for that potential loss. So Google, Kelly, is likely to continue to be a winner here, at least according to the street. And I see Delano nodding in agreement there. And you're saying it, and you're right, Delano, that it has kind of been a quietly having a great year. You know, it's not, it's Tesla that everybody's talking about. Um, so I would imagine that has to, to sort of benefit the company. 100%. I think, the, just as Deirdre mentioned, the kind of the two biggest focuses are, you know, the global ad spend. And they mentioned last quarter that that has come back from the year prior, obviously. And I think that's a big indication there. And if you look at the growth in YouTube, which doubled uh, last quarter from the year, same period year before, it's up to over $7 billion in, in ad revenue on YouTube. I think that's a very big thing to look out for when you come into earnings. They also mentioned that platform engagement grew in adults up from 73% to 81%. And I think when you're looking at, you know, the business 
business overall, the structure, ad revenue is coming back, especially when you look at search. Uh, you know, Google and Alphabet obviously was one of the bigger beneficiaries from the reopening because travel search obviously surged during mm-hmm. that time. And I think that's one of the bigger implications for why the stock has performed so well. So I'm still long, still holding. I think the downside risk is kind of the DOG and, and what may happen as far as M&A, but I don't think that's a near-term risk. You want to hold into earnings here. All right. So the story has room to run, you're saying, as you uh, just said, hold it into earnings. Delano, stay right there. Deirdre, we appreciate it. Let's switch gears. Talk about another mega cap tech name outperforming the market. It's Microsoft. Its shares are up 40 percent this year after they come off one of their best fiscal years in history. They've raised their dividend. They've announced a $60 billion buyback last month. And just like Alphabet, investors are focused on cloud, which has seen revenue growth slow over the past few quarters. Let's bring in Josh Lipton to discuss. Josh, I mean, slowing cloud growth isn't, isn't, you know, the narrative I think people want unless it's just kind of slowing from an unsustainably fast pace. Yeah, I think there's a couple of big themes and trends, Kelly, investors will focus on in Microsoft's report. One is at least bulls are confident that when Satya Nadella is on the call tonight, he's going to keep talking about strength and momentum uh, in his key commercial businesses. And that would, of course, include Azure, his cloud computing business, which goes head to head with AWS. The street still thinks you're going to see probably 48 percent revenue growth year over year for Azure. Of course, we want color and commentary about Office 365 as well. Some other themes and trends I think you'll listen for on the call will be T. That's Microsoft's chat and uh, video conferencing app where Nadella competes there with Zoom and Slack. Remember the last time they reported, Microsoft said Teams had about 250 million monthly active users. So it'll be interesting to see if we get an update to that bogey. And also that Windows business, uh, Kelly. Keep that in mind as well. The new Windows 11 operating system. Windows still does account for about 15% of this company's revenue, even as it has transitioned here to this cloud computing powerhouse, Kelly. No, fair enough. And Delano, I sort of intuitively think of Microsoft as facing a bigger pandemic cliff than Google. Um, why wouldn't that be the case? I think there's a few reasons. As Josh just kind of mentioned, he talked about all the different business segments. The diversification of the business is actually a strong point for Microsoft, as we know. And we're obviously focusing on Azure and cloud and how the services, products, and um, intelligent cloud business can grow. And I think you've seen the great rate of growth slow down a little bit. Shouldn't concern investors because it's still growing at such a fast clip. Uh, and that's going to happen as the course of the business. Now, when you're looking at it from a margin standpoint, they've discussed how they're pouring more of their resources into the higher margin areas of the business. As we saw that there may be in the personal computing uh, segment of the business, there may be kind of a slowdown as you've seen that the demand is outstripping supply just because of the chip, chip sources they're having. So I really want to look at some of the higher margin business segments and how that's growing. I think investors can kind of stay long. It's performed really well over the past year, and I think that trend continues. And Josh, just a quick final word. We are going to get AMD after the bell as well. And we have talked to some chip analysts who are worried about overshipment in areas like PCs. Not that that would affect AMD you know, that much necessarily, but how would you describe sentiment around the chip space and around the PC space right now in general? Is it still pretty strong? Well, I think coming back to Microsoft, you know, there's a, uh, another theme we want to explore there with Nadell on the call and CFO Amy Hood. When you talk about that PC market, analysts will say it's very strong, but showing signs of peaking here, especially at the low end. So that'll be another question I'm sure Nadella gets on the call. Yeah, exactly. Anytime we're talking uh, about peak, investors are paying attention. Josh, thank you so much. We appreciate it, Josh Lipton. All right, finally, let's turn to Robinhood, which was reporting for just the second time as a public company. Their monthly active user number is the key metric to watch here, along with any language regarding their payment 
requirement for order flow, which has been on the SEC's radar. Hood shares are off more than 50 percent from their record high back in August. They're still trading right around the IPO price, which was 38. We're at 39 today. In their first release, Robinhood forecasted seasonal headwinds and lighter trading activity to result in lower revenues and considerably fewer new funded accounts this quarter. Kate Rooney here. Kate, um, I mean, I guess they're trying to set the bar a little bit low. Yeah, they guided last quarter saying we do expect a slowdown. Analysts I've been talking to are really wondering what does a Robinhood quarter look like without a viral event like GameStop? You had that in the first quarter, and that was really the first time we got numbers for Robinhood ahead of uh, the IPO. Or Dogecoin last quarter, that was a big driver and really helped the cryptocurrency numbers. It made up more than half of transaction-based revenue, up from something like 3% the same time the year earlier. Wall Street is now looking to see what is a normal quarter look like for Robinhood and the mix there of uh, revenue, whether it's equities, options is making up a bigger part of the business. And of course, crypto. When last quarter, Robinhood really was looking like a crypto company. Uh, the other thing about the crypto business, uh, you mentioned Dogecoin, sort of those viral events and the drivers going forward. Analysts are a little bit mixed on what is the driver going forward. One uh, analyst uh, from JMP said to me, yes, there will be more viral events. They are just impossible to predict, though, that you say that the uh, mix between social media and stocks or cryptocurrencies is not going away by any means. That is still a tailwind for Robinhood. But it's just you can't predict it. Who knows what the next viral event or meme stock or meme coin, for that matter, is going to be. Right. They kind of want exposure to all of it to maybe benefit from those pop outs. Delano, I think it's interesting. You say you're long here, but you think in the long term, a lot hinges on financial participation from all socioeconomic classes, meaning... Yeah, Kelly, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, Kate hit it just on the head. Volatility and price movement, especially on the crypto side, is so important here, I think, for the business. And that's, you know, I don't know how long that will stay uh, as far as the business, you know, risk standpoint. But if you look at it, the price movement is actually interesting that we haven't seen that price moving up as cryptocurrency prices have risen over the past month. We haven't seen True. Hood um, kind of act uh, the same as Coinbase and some of the other names that are highly correlated. But I do agree that, you know, engagement and, and net funded accounts, monthly active users are so important here. And I think that's going to kind Kind of you know play the story in the long term i got in around 38 you know personally um and i think you know a little bit of the stock steam has come out uh from the original ipo but it's still you know actually performing better than the s p over the time since it's been at an ipo but i think you know investors have to be looking at these trends because i think it's still a company that the story has not yet finished kelly delano do you i mean you make a great point here about how they you think the share price is benefiting more from crypto than it has. Do you as an investor want to see them double down in that direction or should they leave that to the specialists in that space? I think they I think they definitely have to when you're looking at the story of who is actually investing in crypto. Obviously, it's a lot of times big institutions, but smaller times, if you look at their account type, their account uh, average account size is about 5,000 for Robin. And a lot of times, smaller investors, uh, people that are typically not, you know, investing in, in a lot large institution areas are invested in crypto. And I think, you know, when you especially look at the age range of people that are investing in crypto, Robin has to kind of double down. They have to be a player in that space, I think, for sustainability of the long term business model, Kelly. Yeah, the numbers, uh, the estimates for tonight tell you a lot of the 300 million in transactions are expecting about half of that to be options, about almost half of that to be crypto and about only $60 million worth to be equity. So looking forward to what the company has to say. Kate, thank you. Our Kate Rooney will be monitoring that. Delano, this was fun. It was very fun. <laughs> we'll see you again soon. Delano Sapporo joining me today. Coming up, despite the major airlines not being back to full pre-pandemic capacity, smaller player Breeze Airways is making expansion plans. We have those details and an exclusive interview with Breeze CEO David Nealman right after this. 
Welcome back, everybody. Take a look at shares of Walmart, which are dropping today. Jim Cramer is a seller. In his latest Investing Club newsletter, he wrote that he sold Walmart around 149 as it reapproaches its 52-week high. He bought the slight pullback earlier this month, believing it had more room to run. But with the recent climb, he says he's taking some profits. Cramer's Charitable Trust still owns 850 shares, or about a little more than 3% of the portfolio. For more on Jim's moves and exclusive insights and trades, go to cnbc.com slash investing club or point your phone's camera at that QR code on the screen. And still ahead, jet fuel prices are climbing, but one small carrier is making big moves. We'll talk about that next. And remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. After an initial jump of nearly 3%, investors took a closer look at Facebook's earnings, and the stock has reversed course. It's now down 4.5%. They did miss some revenues, and daily and monthly active users were a little lighter than expected. In an effort to reattract young adults to the platform, the company is making a $10 billion bet on the metaverse and said it will report those numbers in a separate segment starting next quarter. The information now estimates the metaverse in its entirety could be worth as much as $82 billion in the next four years. Joining me now to discuss is Roger Dickerman. He He's the CEO of digital art firm Artifacts, which runs an NFT Hall of Fame in the metaverse. <laughs> All right, Roger, welcome. A lot of our viewers are going to want to know, what is an, a Hall of Fame in the metaverse? So a Hall of Fame has to do with digital art, and digital art is the newest medium of art, and it really comes to life in the metaverse with both framing concepts within the metaverse and then over my shoulder over here, a framing concept like this on our very walls. So... Let's talk about the metaverse. You know, there's a lot of different companies who want their reality or their world to be the one that most people are in. Who's leading that? Which ones exist right now? And where are people already making money? You're going to smile, Kelly. How about NFTs and blockchain technology? They're, they're proving out these concepts before our eyes. We see another couple billion dollar a month in the art market. But beyond that, let's go to games. Let's go to play to earn blockchain gaming, Axie Infinity. Speaking of daily active users, over a million daily active users a day. It's an $8 billion company. Go to places like that. Go to artists again. I'll point over my shoulder here. The artist that rhymes with Duck Render, he has a fantastic metaverse concept. He's building out uh, his most recent project, which uh, involves crystals like these, grossed over $30 million. That's one single artist. Yeah, I mean, it is beautiful behind you. I can see the, the hand holding the crystal. It's moving. It's shimmering. So if I own something like this in the metaverse, whose metaverse mm. is that? And where is Facebook uh, in all of this? This is the most fascinating question, right? This is a land grab right now. We have smaller metaverse companies uh, trying to pave their way, like Decentraland, for example, is a nice call out there. Right. But now you have the behemoths like Facebook. They see an opportunity. They see the writing on the wall. They see these billions of dollars. They see a way to own these digital assets in the form of NFTs. Now it's their turn. So you're going to see Facebook step into the center along with other behemoths like uh, Epic Games, which mm -hmm. raised a billion dollars for their metaverse concept. Now it's time for them to duke it out. But do people like you, when you hear the Facebook news, kind of laugh and go, OK, yeah, you know, the boomer Facebook company is going to get in on this. I don't think so. Or do you go, hey, absolutely, they're going to come in and be able to invest more and make it better than anybody else's? Well, that's the thing. I mean, they're so well positioned. We can laugh at this or that or the other. But at the end of the day, they have Oculus, right? They have a VR technology that is ready and probably more advanced than so many other competitors. So, yes. There are other more agile, digitally native companies right now doing the metaverse thing, but never scoff at a Facebook coming into the market. I guess my final question is, has the world, uh, the sort of a lot of this digital technology, whether it's 
um, literally the blockchain, uh, Bitcoin, even in the world with Netflix and then Tesla, has it proven that there's a real advantage to being a first mover? Um, and when should we actually expect Facebook's investments to bear out and be something tangible that we can all experience? There is an advantage to being a first mover, but in the case, again, of a company as large and well-capitalized as Facebook, a second mover can do just fine as well. Um, and Kelly, what was your second question? Remind me. Yeah, when is it something we can all actually experience, you know, and, and how are we going to do that? Is this primarily accessed as a video game with a headset? Does it have anything to do with my mobile phone? So that's the question. This is actually going to move off of mobile, right? It's going to be mobile. Internet was the, the last great revolution. Now we're about to step in further than that. So mobile web, yes, but VR headsets, ultimately, um, we're going to have to see. This is a long game play. I think people hear Facebook make this announcement and think, oh, how about 2022? I mean, this is a 5, 10, 15 year play to see this come to absolute fruition. Well, they're probably happy we're talking about this and not, you know, the metrics for the quarter and what's happening with the ad platform and their latest whistleblower. So that's something. Roger, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kelly. Roger Dickerman is the CEO of Artifacts. Coming up, airlines have gotten hit lately. The Nice Arca index falling more than 11 percent over the past month. While the majors work to recover capacity, one small carrier is expanding and looking for new markets. We have those details next on The Exchange. Welcome back. Business and leisure travel are picking up a bit, and ticket pricing is still strong. So is now the time to expand an airline? The founder of JetBlue and Breeze Airways thinks so. Phil LeBeau is here now with the details and a guest. Phil? Kelly, a big day for Breeze. Let's show you what happened earlier today in Mobile, Alabama, where the company took delivery of its first A220. This is an A220 that was built at the Airbus plant in Mobile. This will be flying next spring with deliveries of 80 A220s that have been ordered by Breeze, ramping up between next spring, or between now and 2028. Take a look at the Breeze route network, and you see a company that is primarily targeting underserved markets in the southeast, southeastern United States. But the plan is eventually that route structure that you see is going to be expanding and expanding on a pretty steady basis. Let's bring in David Nealman, founder and CEO of Breeze Airways, joining us from Mobile. Uh, David, congratulations on the new A220. You fly it or start flying it next spring. Give us a sense of how quickly you'll be feathering in other A220s into your fleets. Oh, thank you for having me on, Phil. Yeah, we're, this is a really exciting day for our company and for all of our team members. Uh, you know, this, as you mentioned, uh, this airplane is going to give us reach. And we're going to take one a month uh, for the next 80 months and maybe 120 months. So uh, as they come on, we're going to keep adding more and more routes. And where our current route system, the, the, the planes are decidedly like an hour and a half, no more than two hours. These will all be three hours plus, maybe four hours. So long range and almost exclusively in markets that have no nonstop competition. So, you know, we've proven that we can stimulate a lot of traffic in these markets, and, and, this, and this airplane is going to, you know, continue that trend. Are you a little bit surprised at the way you've been able to stimulate traffic since you launched in May? I mean, obviously, you targeted underserved markets, so you knew there were people who wanted to fly there. But when you see the demand that has been uh, coming forth from some of these smaller cities, so to speak, has it surprised you given all your years in the uh, industry? Yeah, it has, you know, because usually uh, when you see a market that has maybe 10 or, or 5 or 10 people per day traveling in that market, we would expect a five or six, and we've seen, we're seeing 10x 
uh, up to 20x in some markets. So it, it's, uh, it's really incredible. Uh, you know, we started in May, so we were late for the summer. And then we got, you know, kind of the Delta variant in September. Our October load factors are higher than our July load factors. So it helps to have a smaller airplane and be flying on these exclusive routes. But, uh, you know, now we're going to go longer. And, and the thing that's interesting about this airplane, Phil, uh, you know, we'll show you the interior, but we've got 36 first-class seats in this airplane. So, you know, because of the 2-3 configuration, it made sense to go 2-2. We didn't lose that many seats by going to 36, and the upcharge may be 50 bucks or something to fly first class. So it's a new dimension, which makes more sense when you're flying really long haul. David, uh, in your career, you have seen a lot of ups and downs for the airline industry, certainly after 9-11, and then you had the recession in 2008 and uh, 2009. How does what we've seen in the last year and a half with the pandemic and the recovery, how does it compare to what you've seen in the past? Uh, no comparison. <laughs> there's nothing, there's been nothing like this anywhere, ever, uh, you know, for the airline business, at least in my career. Uh, you know, it's uh, because of the uncertainty, because how long it goes on and, you know, kind of the, you know, all of the changes that have taken place. You know, thank goodness we have vaccines. You know, thank goodness, uh, you know, people feel more comfortable traveling. You know, thank goodness we have a, a really safe environment on board our aircraft for people to feel travel, you know, travel safely. And so, so a big rebound in the summer. Now we're seeing another rebound. People want to get out. They want to travel. They want to see new places and they want to feel safe doing so. David, when we've talked to some of your uh, colleagues uh, in the industry, other CEOs, they've all said, look, higher jet fuel prices are going to force us to have to raise our fares starting this fall. Uh, this winter and then probably going into next year, depending on what happens with jet fuel prices. What are you expecting? Yeah, I, obviously, it's a big component of every airline's cost. Um, thankfully, this airplane uh, burns so little fuel compared, you know, per, on a per seat basis, 25% less. So, you know, actually, if you could say from a competitive advantage, you're actually better off if fuel goes higher. I don't like to see that anyways, but at least it buffers the rise in fuel prices. So, Certainly, fuel prices, uh, fares will go up, but fares going up or down is really a function of more of demand than cost, as we've seen in the past. So, you know, hopefully, you know, the, the, the fuel prices will come down a little bit, and it's because we, we love stimulating traffic with as low as fares as possible. One last question, uh, David. I have been flying quite a bit over the last few weeks, and I've noticed the airports are super crowded. The concessions are not staffed. It's generally not a very fun experience right now, uh, the flying experience itself. What are you expecting for the holidays? Is it going to be pretty miserable for many people? Yeah, I hope not. You know, I mean, once we get through the stimulus period, hopefully people want to come back to go to work. You know, I think these vaccine mandates are going to cause, you know, a bit of an issue if, if, if they aren't extended, you know, because people are not, you know, there's a certain segment of the population that just is not willing to do that. So, you know, we, you know, hopefully leadership in Washington will understand that so we can, you know, get through the holiday periods instead of having, you know, deadlines that come on just before the holidays. That that really uh, is, is going to be make it tough for, for travelers. But, you know, if I have to recommend one thing, go nonstop. Don't connect through a hub. And that's what we have is nonstop flights. David Nealman, founder and CEO of Breeze Airways, joining us from Mobile, Alabama. Thank you, David. On a day when, uh, Kelly, they received their first A220, and they're going to be delivering or receiving more of those over the next several years. Back to you, Kelly. Thank you so much for bringing that to us. Our thanks to David Nealman. And, Phil, you make an excellent point. You, know, you probably saw the story this week. Denver Airport held a job fair hoping for 5,000 attendees and got less than 100. 
Uh, that's the labor shortage. And consumers may be getting back on planes, but investors aren't getting back into the stocks. The sector is the worst performer so far this year. JetBlue down 9% in the last month. It's flat on the year. Delta down 7% in the past month and one of only two airlines still in the red for 2020. And the worst performer is Spirit down 15% in the past month and lower again today. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.